Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the official Warlord Game Podcast. My name is Brad, and this is the podcast that explores uh, the many, many wonderful games that Warlord Games makes. Now, in recent episodes, we have dug back into uh, quite a few of the games that Warlord has put out over the years, uh, and we have covered on this cast when they were new, and we've been revisiting them. Most notably, recently we had an episode about Bolt Action, Warlord's largest game, a 28mm infantry platoon scale World War II game. And we did an episode about how to properly theme your army with Brian Cook, the author of one of the great bolt action campaign books. And we had a lot of feedback since then saying, Brad, there's, there's another side to that coin. And I know that theming is important when, you know, creating you know, great tabletop forces for bolt action. But there are a lot of you that listen to this show that uh, play in either tournaments or playing events or are looking for some ideas uh, or just some discussion about maybe the quote-unquote more competitive side of bolt action. Now, this isn't necessarily my favorite conversational topic, but I have played competitively in the past, and bolt action does have a lot of units that there's you can have very rich discussions. There are literally, there have been almost a dozen or maybe half a dozen currently but there are lots of podcasts that have discussed bolt action at a competitive level over the years it it is definitely one of the things that we could talk about for hours but i thought we would try and keep it light and interesting and have on a couple of guests to who who know what they're talking about to discuss you know, bolt action on the tabletop from a more mechanical view and to talk about some of the units and national rules in an interesting manner that, you know, that might give you uh, some tactical ideas. Now, we're not going to necessarily be getting into min-maxing and or trying to build an army to kick your opponent's face in. Because, you know, to quote my great-grandmother, don't do things to other people you wouldn't like done to yourself, and you wouldn't like that. So we're going to have a good time today, and we're just going to talk about bolt action in a more competitive sense, but not in a going-down-your-throat sense. Um, now, one of our guests was unable to join us last minute, um, the lovely Alistair from Scotland. He did send his notes, though, so I will be playing the part of a Scot and an Australian today. But joining us from the great United States, we have a, a very prolific voice from the Bolt Action community. We have Jeff from the Snafu Podcast. Welcome, man. How you doing? Doing very well. Thanks for having me on. Now, you guys just hit a major milestone. How long have you been at this? Uh, over three years now, which is crazy because we honestly didn't think we'd be going that far when we started, so... Right on, man. Well, you guys just hit, what, 50 episodes? Yeah, we just actually recorded 51 the other night, so yeah. Boom. Oh, that is a, that is a major milestone in podcasting, man. That is awesome. <laughs> and when I when we talk about that, though, you guys have uh, not only done 51 episodes, I guess, at this point, but they're behemoths. I mean, they are two, three hours a pop. And as a podcaster, that is, uh, you know, seriously prolific podcasting. So, yeah, love you guys. <laughs> Been listening for years, and it's great to have you on, man. Yeah, very happy to be here. We love talking about bolt action, obviously. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I know you know what you're talking about. I've listened. Now, 
this the whole point was to get three points of view from three separate metas the us the uk and australia uh, bolt actions largest three markets now again alistair was not able to join us however i do have his notes and i did follow up with uh, some other folks from the uk so i'm going to try and do my best to paraphrase both but um jeff what are your ideas about bolt action let's get started let's let's paint the scene so to speak um let's talk about bolt action as a game how do you sort of see bolt action um as both a sort of a cinematic narrative game versus a tabletop competitive game uh is there room for both how how do you see this uh well it, there's absolutely room for both um i played a lot of miniatures games my through my course of my life and by far, Bolt Action is not only the one I feel is the most cinematic, uh, it's also got one of the one of the tightest rule sets out there. Right. Uh, we play this game. We love the mechanics of this game. We don't find too many things that are like, oh, you took that unit, you know, get out of here with that. That's very, very rare you run into that situation. So right. uh, it's excellent as a game, and it's excellent as telling a story. So we absolutely love it for that. Yeah, I always loved Bolt Action, exactly what you said, just to add on to that. I always loved in Bolt Action that, in general, if you are running, I, I've faced some very, quote-unquote, brutal lists that are, mm -hmm. you know, ahistorical, um, largely built to fit a theme, and that theme is, you know, winning a game, um, <laughs> so to speak. Uh, but I've always... I've. I guess I've rarely felt like I didn't have a chance. Bolt action's right. great for that. Um, some of the mechanics are a little swingy at times. And as far as, you know, we have an expression in Melbourne and in some other places that bolt action happens. Sometimes the dice are just against you. And that's, you know, either the order dice or the pinning checks. Something goes awry. And you, you know, mm -hmm. and it's just like it would be on the battlefield. Something happens. And you go, oops, well, you know, I can't help that. Um, and then you have to adapt and overcome. And in doing so, um, bolt action often levels itself. Do, do you have that experience as well? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. There's, I'm not sure that I've ever really played a game of bolt action where I thought, geez, I'm just completely out of this game and there's absolutely nothing I can do. No matter how bad my dice have been, there's always a chance you can claw back and surprise yourself with you know, when, and of course, you will absolutely have your dice go cold uh, and just can't seem to get a roll or get an order dice when you need it. But I mean, you're absolutely correct. That's life. I mean, that happens in everything. Sometimes uh, if you're American, your your favorite receiver drops a pass that would have been a game winning touchdown mm -hmm. or uh, in football anywhere else in the world. You miss a wide open penalty kick. You know, these things happen. So exactly. Hits the just crossbar. part of the game. Yeah, exactly. Right. Hits a crossbar. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I think. In order, I mean, if we're going to talk about the most "quote unquote" successful tournament playing bolt action players, uh, or we're going to talk about competitive listing or all of this, I think one of the common themes that people talk about, and this is something that I have looked at for years, is consistency. And I think yep. bolt action is a game that, though it has consistency, and as you say, it's balanced and it's fun to play. It's got great. Uh, it's got great mechanics that, you know, really lead to the game being able to be picked up quickly and yet having great tactical depth. The things that people most often look for in, you know, quote unquote competitive bolt action listing or units 
is that sense of consistency that you're able to count on what's going to happen on the tabletop um, so that you're able to plan around it. Would you agree? Absolutely. Yeah. Take as much uh, chance out of the equation as you possibly can. Yeah. That's, that's exactly what you're looking for in a competitive list. And that, I believe, ladies and gentlemen, is largely where we're going to be going with a lot of the listing uh, choices that we're going to discuss today. Again, we are not going to be talking about the min-max uh, face-punching list that you know may be discussed on some other podcasts or um, you know might be talked about on the internet. We're going to talk about some solid, dependable choices. Some might even say great choices, um, depending <laughs> on your bolt-action army, that we can lay out on the tabletop and feel good about. Um, you know, there are... Certain army lists, Norway springs to mind, that people say you can't win a game with. I mm-hmm. recently played against Norwegians, uh, and you know what? <laughs> it was a rough game. I played against an opponent who knew what he was doing, had built a, a very historical list, uh, it had an MMG. It had, uh, you know, which is often bemoaned as being not a great unit choice. It had, you know, squads of guys with rifles. And, you know, people were going, oh, can that win a game? Oh, yeah, it oh, yeah. can. Um, so, again, just because we're talking about something on this list of units that, or national rules that we're going through today doesn't mean you can't win with other things. In fact, I often try as a bolt action player, especially when I was playing in events, I actually was most successful by trying to go the other way and playing lists that didn't include the obvious choices because then your opponents are often thinking, wait, what is this? For me, it's often, and I'll let you chime in on this in a second, Jeff. For me, it's always been, it's it's not necessarily the individual units that make an army in bolt action great. It's how, A, you use them, but more to the point, B, that you have a plan. It's how your army synergizes together. And I'm not talking about gotcha combos. I'm talking about building an army list, knowing how it works, running with it for long enough that you have an understanding of how it operates, and making sure that you do have an answer to things that come at you at the tabletop. So, and that often includes things that people quote may find quote unquote un or non competitive choices because mm-hmm. they fill the needs that my army requires. Uh, would you? What are your thoughts on that? Hundred percent agree with you on that. Yeah, you uh, you absolutely want to have a, an army list that you put together that comes out greater than the sum of its parts. Uh, and experience with an army list is absolutely, I think, the number one factor in, in winning any in any environment, competitive or otherwise. Uh, if somebody picks up an army that they found on the internet and this list looks really good and it's got a lot of those quote-unquote overpowered units in it, I've seen plenty of guys play that list and lose to very vanilla, run-of-the-mill, fluffy bunny, we call them in the States lists, yeah. because they don't know what they're doing and the guy playing the quote-unquote easy list knows what he's doing. So exactly. it's all the difference in the experience. is all the difference in the world. Exactly. Now, one of the things about bolt action is one of the one of the ways that is very easy to pick up, I should say, is that if you look at any given list, bolt action always has, bolt action armies always have inexperienced units, regular units, and veteran units. And they are largely the same in every single army. 
A rifleman is a rifleman is a rifleman. Now, there are some national rules that change that. I hear you calling out in the background, Internet. And yes, absolutely. But there are some units that are in every single bolt-action army or in most bolt-action armies. And we're going to start by talking not necessarily about units that fit in particular nations, but units from the overall group of uh, units that any bolt-action army or most bolt-action army can pull from. So, Jeff, let's talk about some of those to start with. Now, one of the ones that people love to discuss is the sniper. Now, before I get into oh, yeah. my feelings, um, would you like to lay down what your thoughts about the, the, the viability of a sniper on a tabletop? Because some people love them, some people hate them. Uh, they tend to be loved in competitive listing, but interestingly, not by everyone. What are your thoughts? I think they're absolutely the most essential, non-essential unit in the game. Uh, <laughs> right and what on. I mean by that is if your list, if you're planning for the use of a sniper, like it's figured into your overall battle strategy, a sniper is an amazing unit, and you'll wonder how anyone could possibly not take one in their list. Right. The converse of that is, is the number of times I've played with snipers, and I've gone through an entire tournament, and the son of a gun hasn't hit anything because yeah. I just can't buy anything other than a one or two on the dice. Yep. And I'm like, I, I wasted 50 or 65 points on this unit, and it did nothing for me for an entire tournament. So it's a little bit swingy. When it when it hits, it can be absolutely devastating with its with its damage rule. Right. But there are also times it gets to do nothing, and you're thinking to yourself, I would have much rather had five, six, seven infantry guys with rifles, they would have done a lot more for me. So yeah, true. I, I, I love the sniper and I hate them at the same time. Yeah. And I guess that comes into um, just the nature of rolling dice in a six-sided uh, dice tabletop war mm -hmm. game because snipers do have, if you look at the maths, they do have a better chance of hitting things in general than almost anything else in the game. Um, yeah. they are, they have, they get rid of a lot of the negative modifiers to hit. They just ignore them. So they theoretically should be hitting better than everyone, but of course dice. So, and that is one of the reasons why people who are looking for that, uh, consistency tend to like them. Now, of course, nothing's consistent as Jeff just pointed out, uh, except for flamethrowers, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, <clears throat> but we also, uh, and Jeff did also talk about the amazing damage potential that they can put out. Not only when snipers hit, can they um, pull particular models out of units. So you can pull out a unit's machine gunner. You can pull out its sergeant, um, which makes it harder for the unit to deal with pins and to pass morale checks. However, you can single shot small teams. You can eliminate mortar teams with a single shot from a sniper. And they more reliably uh, apply pins at a longer distance than your average rifleman. So they are great uh, in bolt action. However, as we said, nothing is 100% in this game. Uh, so when they hit, they're amazing. When they don't, they do lead to a serious case of feel-bads by people who have <laughs> them. Uh, but again, bolt action happens, right? Uh, and exactly. I think... That is a, that's a good place to start. So the sniper. I, I know that many people enjoy lists that allow them to take more than one sniper so they can try and double down on that consistency. Uh, but, yeah, uh, they are a great place to start. Jeff, uh, I understand that you are a fan of the light mortar. 
I am a tremendous fan of the Light Mortar, and I have not been able to convert many of my local players to the Church of the Light Mortar yet, but I'm working on it. Man, I, uh, the Light Mortar is very decisive because a lot of people absolutely hate the damn thing, and then yeah. there is a small but very passionate group of players that absolutely love that thing. Tell me why I should be a member of your church. <laughs> so the first thing to consider is what you want your mortars doing. The number of times medium mortars clearly have the bigger template, right? But they're also stuck. So if they've got to come onto the turn, uh, come onto the table turn one, mm -hmm. they're not firing that turn. Whereas a light mortar absolutely can move and can move his six inches on advance and still fire. So you're not losing a turn of shooting by taking a light mortar. Secondly, your choice is a target. Every once in a while, sure, you're going to throw a six and hit an infantry squad that's moving with your with your medium mortar and do some serious damage to him, and that's great. But that's only a one in six chance. It's not great. Right. What you're usually shooting your mortars at are either units that are in heavy cover and have no intention to leave, or weapons teams or artillery pieces. And when you get to those, the light mortar's better because he can move a sh move up, make a shot, get into better cover, and be close. And he's still going to kill one to two guys when he lands that mortar round on a team. Yeah. So the mobility that he provides you is excellent, Plus, he's a small team, so he's much harder to hit to anything that's not a sniper. That's very true. And as you say, I mean, that got me thinking because so often in bolt action, because if you're moving and you're firing at someone who's in heavy cover, uh, depending on the range of the weapon, it's often you're hitting on sixes on sixes, which, yep. you know, is really hard to do. Um, Absolutely. But if you, again, if you're firing that light mortar on the move, you're, you're hitting on sixes. So your chance of hitting is significantly better. Hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm starting to come around on this. <laughs> uh, well, if we're talking mortars, let's, let's talk about one of Alistair's choices, which was one of mine as well, which was the medium mortar. Now you mentioned the medium mortar does use a larger template. And uh, at regular with a spotter, we're talking 60 points. Now, mortars are great because they fire indirectly. So you don't necessarily need to see where it's going to be effective. Um, they're relatively cheap, hence the 60 points. And if you have a spotter, again, spotters are really hard to dig out because they are often in heavy cover, because they are a small team. Uh, and so you can usually fire your medium mortar uh, with impunity, people, there's just no hitting it back uh, unless someone gets clever with a sniper or uh, advances rather aggressively. Um, your mortar can often survive a game, which is great because it means that you will always have that order dice in the bag as units start disappearing out of your army list. And now mortars are great because they apply pressure. Um, and what I mean by that is if someone has a big gun or a howitzer or a unit that's really dug in and you just can't get to it, a mortar's great because you can start firing indirectly on it. Now, sure, you're only hitting on a six the first turn, but mm -hmm. then you hit on a five and six the following turn, then a four, five, and six the turn after. And the more that someone stays in place, the more likely you are to hit them. And in doing so, you are forcing your opponent to make some difficult choices. And do, do I stay? Do I just stay here and hope that it doesn't hit me and keep doing what I'm doing? Uh, if you, know, you have a unit on an objective and you can't move them anywhere else without losing that objective, for example, or a heavy, uh, you know, a big gun. If you have a big gun that's ranged in 
and you absolutely need it to keep hitting something or it's in a particularly strategic spot, you don't want to move it. But if you have to because of a mortar, that can force some difficult you know, choices. Um, is that how you see a medium mortar? Absolutely, yeah. That's the perfect use for a medium mortar, uh, especially because it's got such much uh, a longer range than, right? the, than the light mortar does. Yeah. So indirectly applying that pressure to, say, I don't know, a veteran 88 is one of those ones it's very difficult to get rid of if it's on the table. That mortar is the perfect tool for the job. Uh, or an artillery piece of any nature, or even a dug-in machine gun team, if you see one someplace, if they're in hard cover, that mortar's perfect for, exactly as you said, applying that pressure to make them either get out of there or eventually accept that they're going to lose the unit you're ranging in on. Now, I did a meta-analysis of Australia's largest bolt-action tournament, uh, not this year, last year. And the medium mortar was one of the most prolific units mm. at that event. Almost everyone had one from the top yep. tables to the bottom. It is just everywhere. Now, what was interesting is heavy mortars, which used to be very popular in first edition of bolt action, not so popular in second edition. And I think it's because the game switched to templates. Though a heavy mortar does do more pins on a hit and is more effective damage-wise, often the medium mortar, because of the the damage modifier on infantry, a medium mortar will almost do as much damage individually per person to a... Um, the dice don't change significantly between a, a medium and a heavy mortar, and the increase in template isn't going to net you that many more guys uh, going from medium to heavy. And I think from a points efficiency-wise, that's why a lot of people go with the medium. Would you agree? Absolutely. That's exactly right. It's the best cross-section of points versus efficiency in the mortar department. Right on. Well, I see on your list that you also have one of my faves. Now, it is not in every army list. In fact, it's only in about maybe half, but mm -hmm. let's talk about the anti-tank rifle because I love these things. I love the anti-tank rifle specifically. You have to get over the name, though, because you're generally not shooting it at tanks, at least mid- and late-war <laughs> tanks. Yeah, right? <laughs> Very rarely do you fire at a tank with it. Maybe a light tank if you're desperate. But 90% of the time, the use I find for an anti-tank rifle team is picking off or at least applying pressure on armored cars right. and especially transport vehicles. Yes. It's excellent for you know putting around into the, the truck carrying the 10 SMG wielding guys and stopping them dead in their tracks. And it's yeah. fantastic for that. And, and honestly, your opponents will often underestimate it. They'll see that anti-tank rifle and they think to themselves, eh, that's not a really big anti-tank gun. It won't cause any danger mm -hmm. right until you put a plus two round through the engine block of their truck. Right. And suddenly... And it's too late for them at that point. So uh, I absolutely love it. And it's very inexpensive as far as anti-tank and anti-transport vehicle options go. Exactly. And, you know, for 30 points at regular, you're going to get um, you're going to get an order dice in the bag uh, yep. an order dice. You know, having a lot of order dice, having more order dice than your opponent means that you have more opportunities to make those tactical choices. So it, it's a cheap pull. Um, but as you say, one of my favorite tactics in the game and one that I used to write articles about back when boltaction.net had its own page was putting uh, having an anti-tank rifle in my list and putting it on the end of a road and putting it in over you know putting it in ambush and the second any and it just sitting with it 
and mm-hmm. I would just wait and I would just wait. And its sole purpose was, as you say, to ping trucks or uh, light car, you know, light, uh, light, light trucks, whatever you want to call them, transports holding uh, those flamethrower teams or those, you know, aggressive hand to hand squads or SMG wielding squads, Gurkhas, whatever you want. You don't want those units in your face. And if you can get rid of their mobility, not only by destroying that truck, but when you destroy that truck, they are then knocked out of the truck. They lose a turn. They also have pins, extra pins applied to them. So it was just, it was always just to keep those units at arm's length so I could deal with them with the rest of my army. And if I can spend 30 points on an insurance policy for that, sure, it's not going to work every time, but it worked enough. That it was one yep. of those things. And it forces your opponent, do I go down the road? Now the road doubles the efficiency of my truck, which is great. You know, I get to move twice as far. Ah, but there's a chance that you won't make it if you do that. Which means exactly. that they then have to go a different route, which slows them down and keeps them out of your face for another turn. Anything you want to add to that? Because No, that perfectly perfectly encompasses why I put anti-tank rifle teams in any list they can take one. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's... I did mention the uh, the flamethrower. Let let's talk flamethrower, <laughs> shall we? Because if we're talking competitive units in the game, again, another hot hot ha ha. <laughs> I'll be here all week. Um, unit that folks love to debate is the flamethrower team. Now, in in version one, it hit automatically, and mm-hmm. that made it one hundred percent, if not one hundred and fifty percent, better than everything else in the game. Depending on yep. your feelings about math, because you would be able to do. I mean, you would always hit. And by always hitting, it was just amazing. And not only did it cause a lot of damage, it forced an order check that if someone failed with, and it added a bunch of pins, they would just disappear. So it was horrifyingly effective, and it hit all the time. Now, in second edition, you now do roll to hit. Jeff, how does that change your feelings about this? Because clearly you think it's a great ad for effective units in bolt action. Absolutely. Um, so the flamethrowers changes into V2. Uh, rolling to hit is is a terrifying double-edged sword because to get close enough to make sure you're actually going to hit somebody with it, if you miss, you need to assume that you're going to lose the flamethrower unit. I mean, it's it's going to be a write-off if you miss. So yeah. there's some serious, uh, you know, rock, paper, scissors to it as far as do I use it or not. That being said, when it does hit, it's so effective that it kind of tips the scales for me into trying to always yeah. include one in the list. It's just, it's just so good against, particularly against units that are often hard to get off the table, fanatics mm-hmm. in particular. And those awful, big, scary tanks, if you don't happen to have the right AT yep. rounds. You know, if, you're, if your tank assets have been wrecked or are pinned out and you're going, I don't know what to do, flamethrowers fix just about everything kids um, absolutely <laughs> if you can hit with them now i did read and it's something i hadn't read in a while i was i was scrolling through some uh some facebook pages and i heard someone discussing the pros and cons of a particular flamethrower and that would be the double german one so in the german mm-hmm. list you can take one shot flamethrowers instead of in if you take a flamethrower team you can take um, two one-shot ones instead of one that can continue to fire. Now, keeping in mind that when regular flamethrowers fire, there's a chance that they run out of gas every time they fire and they disappear, a one in six chance, and they 
then they run off to refuel and they are taken off the table. It's as though they die. I always kind of felt like the flamethrower teams uh, were wonderful, not only for dealing with things, but because they were so effective in version one and version two, um, they were wonderful distractions. And they always kept my opponent pouring fire at them, which allowed mm -hmm. other parts of my ar army to do what I needed them to do, like get to objectives. The I, I really do like the double single-shot flamethrowers. Sure, when you fire yeah. them, they automatically die, and they stop being a distraction at that point. But especially in the era of second edition, where ooh, you are rolling to hit, and it is a, a little bit of a crapshoot. And as you were saying with the sniper, when you miss, it feels bad. Um, because you have a lot of hopes on your flamethrower team, having twice as many chances to hit feels good, mm -hmm. um, at least yes. for me. Uh, and when you miss with both, you definitely feel bad, but then because they <laughs> kill themselves. <clears throat> but yeah, there's there's the consideration in a six turn game how many times you actually going to get to shoot a flamethrower? Yeah, and I would be very surprised if it averages more than two. Yeah. So those individual shot flamethrowers, I think, are an excellent deal. Yeah. And it may not fit everyone's style of play. But if we're talking, uh, you know, if you're going for bang for buck, you know, you can get a lot of bang for, you know, double chance to hit flamethrowers. So just wanted to do a little honorable mention on that one. And I know mm -hmm. there's going to be people who disagree with that. That's fine. I happen to like them. But if you don't, don't take them. There you go. Um <laughs> Now, I do want to quickly add many units in, or sorry, many army lists in bolt action increasingly these days um, because through campaign books and theater books, we've gotten additional units. We are seeing the increase in engineer squads. Now, I call them engineers, and I know they're called pioneers, and there's all sorts of different words, but we have units that have built in or baked in flamethrowers as part of them. You can upgrade a normal infantry squad to have a flamethrower now those are particularly i would say those are an honorable mention to this if not possibly better than the small team because mm -hmm. you have the the you not only have the the additional support of people being around them to add fire to flamethrowers in case you do miss you might be in a squad that has a lot of submachine guns that can still apply pins and cause casualties so that you're you know you're not all or nothing with your hits but also you have it you have more than just two guys if people are shooting at it or if someone's shooting with a sniper i guess that doesn't help does it because they can pull the no. yeah sorry uh, but yes if if someone's shooting at a pioneer squad you know with a normal weapon it gives you that defensive cushion um what are your thoughts about engineer squads versus the small team they're literally my favorite infantry squad in the game, yeah. uh, in a in a competitive setting. They're they're certainly not always themey, but when you can get away with it, they're absolutely the my go to choice for an infantry unit, because you're you're protecting the flamethrower with uh, I'll call them ablative wounds from right. standard fire. I mean, it doesn't help against a sniper, but it absolutely helps against that lucky roll from somebody else shooting at them. And when they're done firing, you know, if the flamethrower runs out, you still got a viable squad of infantry there that can do some damage and continue on in the game. So they're they're fantastic as far as I'm concerned. They take everything I like about a flamethrower and make it better. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly my feelings. Um, well, let's 
Let's jump on to uh, something that is a little also controversial. Now, bolt action is there's been many debates about the you know the nature of the game because of the nature of warfare in World War II. Cavalry. Um, there's been a lot of people who have said cavalry was not really a part of World War II. It was more World War One. And then you have people who pull out uh, particular actions where cavalry existed and cavalry units that existed in World War II. And sure, they are a lot less common than previous wars, um, but they did exist. Um, whether or not they existed in uh, numbers that... Uh, would be reflective of what you actually see on a bolt action competitive tabletop is another subject entirely. Cavalry uh, tend to be very effective because they are mobile. Uh, they are hard to deal with. If they charge you, they're very effective in hand to hand combat. Um, so they're able to zip around. They are able to avoid your firepower and they are able to occasionally hit like a truck depending on the type of cavalry. Uh, whether or not um, you want to put one, put some in your army, whether or not they fit your theme or your tactics. I have run some in my Chinese uh, nationalist army, and they've been very hit or miss for me depending on how I make up my army. I find that you can't just throw them off by themselves. Um, you need to sort of have a game plan, but they are great distractors. Jeff, what are your experiences with Cav? <laughs> So one of the guys in our club plays an almost exclusively Mongolian cavalry list, wow. and it is fantastically hard to beat if you're not used to seeing cavalry. Right. They're just really good. They have recce. They're running all over the place. You feel like your fire is ineffective. But once you learn where they can and can't go, it gets a little bit easier for you. I mean, they're limited to not going into buildings unless they dismount. They're limited by rough terrain, which... It's kind of an artifact of the bolt action table that we have so much open ground when in mm -hmm. reality, most battlefields are fought over very rough and uneven ground. Right. But that's just, that's just a peculiar artifact of how we set up gaming tables. It makes Calvary uh, seem outsized for their effectiveness in a game than they were in history. Right. But that being said, I think they're an excellent unit, but you really do have to commit to them and most importantly, get experience and practice with using them. And once you have those two things, they can be a fantastic choice in the list. Agreed. Absolutely. And I think it's one of those things that you mentioned earlier when you say if you pull a quote-unquote net list off the internet and run it right off the bat, if you don't know what you're doing with it, you're going to get punished. And I think this is one of those units in particular that you got to think about how it works before you actually uh, start playing with it. And then it might take a little bit of time for you. This may be the hardest to master unit in the game would you yeah yeah absolutely agree with you yeah yeah right on well let's while we're talking mobile units you have a choice in here that i happen to love uh let's talk about the jeep gas truck kubel wagon mini vehicle <laughs> transport transport um what are your thoughts uh, as a transport vehicle, I think they're okay. If you've got a small team that needs to get somewhere in a hurry or you want them to come in from reserves yeah. or outflanking, that's great. That's a great use for a Jeep, a Gaz, or a Kubel wagon. I think when these three units really start to shine is when you strap a medium machine gun on them yeah. and ditch the transport capacity and suddenly find yourself with a machine, a mobile medium machine gun that in many cases is less expensive than the machine gun team itself with infantry. And possibly more durable. And quite frankly, more durable as you need a six to hurt it. So exactly. yeah, 
doesn't benefit as much from certain kinds of cover, but right. that's sort of your, you know, the, up to the player. If, if you leave it out in the open, you're kind of making a mistake. But these things happen. Yeah. No, they're fantastic. They're very points efficient for what they do. Exactly. Yeah, my thoughts exactly. Um, now, they are great. I do know that a flamethrower in a Jeep is a terrible thing to, to face <laughs> against. Uh, when I played competitive bolt action, I had a, a, a German field car that had uh, my double flamethrower team in it. And uh, I would just, you know, it was less than 100 points. In fact, it was something like 80 points total out of a 1,000-point list. And I didn't care what happened to it. I would right. outflank with it. Uh, if there were roads, I would sometimes just deploy it on the tabletop behind a building and sit there and think, you have to come, you have to deal with this. If you get in my face, I will counter-assault you with this. And because flamethrowers in particular were very effective, having them in that tiny little transport allowed you to hide the darn thing, but it also gave you the mobility to reach out and touch someone if you needed to. And if you have enough order dice in your bag, um, if you get down to the last couple, you, now you do need to have two because one to move the transport and then one to jump out the flamethrower team. It can be, you know, it can be quite effective. So absolutely. Yeah. Having that up your sleeve was, or having that up my sleeve was always, uh, always felt good. However, as I started to get into more historical theme lists, that didn't always <laughs> fit anyway. Yes, but definitely something to think about. Well, Jeff, let's get to, before we dig into individual nations and national rules and particular units that only appear in certain army lists, let's talk about a couple of special rules then. Now, in version one, hands down, in my opinion, the best special rule in bolt action was tough fighter. For one point, it doubled your effectiveness in hand-to-hand -hand combat, and it was, it was brutal. And I, I really like the change that they put in with version two, which was you roll the same number of dice as always, but for each hit, you get to hit again the second time around, which, you know, lessened its effectiveness, but also made it, you know, it made sense that if you're on a roll, you're going to be on a roll. And if it's, if you're not, well, you're not. And yep. given how deadly hand-to-hand -hand combat is in bolt action, it really did increase the effectiveness of particular units, especially for one point per model. What are your thoughts about Tough Fighter in second edition? It's still an excellent choice. And if you have the option to take Tough Fighter on any of your infantry squads, I highly recommend paying the point and taking it. Yeah. Just because many times in combat, I've either tied, drawn a combat, mm -hmm. or I've you know, lost by one. And I was like, man, if I had one more attack that would have hit, exactly. I could have saved the squad of 12 guys as opposed to I'm going to lose 12 guys to three guys because I had one bad dice roll. Exactly. So if you've got the option, I think you absolutely should take Tough Fighter. It's fantastic. Yeah, it is really effective. And it isn't a, it, it is not in every army list, mm -hmm. but there typically is at least one, possibly two units in a lot of, army list that have tough fighter built in and uh you know they can be great to take uh and we will talk specifically about certain national rules that link very well with uh special rules like tough fighter or like the next one that we're going to talk about which is fanatic now fanatic is a fantastic 
fantastic special rule as well in that it really keeps your squads from disappearing on the tabletop. Jeff, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Fanatic is well, is fantastic. And in as so much as that it saves you from one bad roll in close combat because your squad's not wiped, you just lose whatever models you took as casualties. Right. That makes it really good. Where you really find the advantage of it, though, I find is getting shot at and taking casualties, they don't care. Right. So you get half mm-hmm. your squad blown away. Those fanatics, until they're down to one man, are going to stick around on that battlefield. So it's an excellent investment to make a squad that really has some staying power. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned the one man because that is one of the most common rules that when I played a lot of bolt action competitively, people seem to not remember is that Fanatic stops working when there's one guy by himself. Uh, All of a sudden he realizes all of his mates are gone and he goes, oh, and that's usually when all the pins take hold and the guy goes. (laughs) So yes, Fanatic, fantastic. In a similar vein, Stubborn is quite good because it allows you to test on your base morale. Uh, Pins don't take away from that. And that can be really effective in paratrooper lists in particular. That is also a great add. But the problem with Fnatic uh, in particular, although Stubborn suffers from this a little bit, is that it's a little bit more expensive. Fanatic's three Mm -hmm. points per model, and that can really add up. Now, if you're building a list around that, and I know a lot of people, I hear people yelling out in the background, Stalingrad. Yes, if you have a Stalingrad-themed list and you've paid to upgrade everything, or an SS list, and you've paid to give everyone Fanatic, that's great. I mean, that's, that's how your army is built. It becomes particularly good, and we'll get to this, I'm sure we'll mention it again, when we get to the Japanese, because the Japanese don't pay for Fnatic. Now, we are going to talk about, in a second, when we get to national rules, how every nation has rules that sort of bend the rules of bolt action uh, in a particular way, and that's its national flavor. Well, the Japanese get Fnatic for free. So if you have 100 uh, models on the tabletop, and I know that that's a gross overstatement, (laughs) although I have run a list that's close to that, that would be, uh, what, 300 300. points for free. And boy, does it it feel good to use to have 300 free points in your army. Uh, But it, uh, it has led to some people thinking the Japanese are possibly, you know, over advantaged for this, especially combined with, you know, the the bonsai rule. However, if you also think about it, the you know, the list is quote unquote balanced in a way to deal with that and that everyone has something that's beneficial as a national rule. What are your thoughts about what I'm saying? Uh, yeah, there are definitely some nations rules that um, find more utility on a in a game of bolt action than others. And the Japanese definitely find a lot of utility out of that out of that particular rule. Uh, I don't think it's like the one rule to beat them all, though. I, it's it's not the uber rule out there, but it is very, very good. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's it definitely adds to the effectiveness and the long term durability of a unit. Yes. Now, yes. I suppose I, I we have not mentioned one particular unit type and. I wasn't sure whether to slip it into particular nations or to talk about it as a general sense. So I'm going to talk about it last before we get into a particular individual nations and their units. And that would be multi-launchers. Now, 
Yes, uh, I can hear the laughing now. Um, literally. So multi-launchers are mortars on steroids. They have the opportunity of hitting units around the target, uh, and so they can be particularly effective. They can also, thanks to you know the swinginess of, I don't even want to say swinginess, but they are not the most accurate weapons. Uh, intentionally, the rules were written that way. Uh, and so usually they won't hit. However, when they do, man, do they. Uh, yep. And, you know, the U.S. has the Land Mattress. You have the Katusha, um, the Nebelwerfer. These things are in a lot of army lists, uh, and a lot of people like them. But it's, again, one of those things. You love them or you hate them. Uh, Jeff, what are your thoughts about the multi-launcher? <clears throat> Um, you're not going to make very, very many friends when you play with them, <laughs> right. uh, but they're, they're absolutely, I, I find them psychologically and in game terms to be incredibly effective for their points cost. I think, uh, a set for a German army for Nebelwerfer is something like 65 points. And it's ridiculous. The effect you can have on your opponent simply because they don't want to take the chance. So they don't bunch their units up and they keep them all six inches apart. Exactly. Which you're, you're totally affecting how your opponent moves, how they play, what terrain they dare take just by having that on the table. So for a, a cost effectiveness, it, it almost can't be beat in my mind, but again, it's incredibly swingy. I, I absolutely went to a tournament where I ran <clears throat> two Nebelwerfers and two Panzerwerfers and what? I had a lot of fun. Yeah, I had a lot of fun. But did your opponents? I don't know that my opponents had as much fun as I did, although mm -hmm. I was always keen to warn them, you know, maybe you don't want to put a guy in that building because if I shoot at it, I'm going to be measuring from the edge of that building. Right. Uh, not that everybody listened to me when I told them that. That being said, I, by the fourth or fifth round of that tournament, I had a game where I simply couldn't roll a six. No matter, it didn't matter I had four multi-launchers. I couldn't hit a darn thing. And suddenly it was like, this is super cool, but the dice go cold. It doesn't matter. So it's it's not a unit that's going to absolutely win you a game, but it is absolutely a unit that's very effective for its points, even in just the psychological nature of the game, as opposed to actual damage on the table. Exactly. Well said. Well, let's get into national rules. Now, I did mention that national rules and individual nations um, all have particular rules and units to add to their individual flavor, which makes them different from the more generic sort of bolt action, reinforced basic platoon and unit selection choices. Um, let's start with, um, if we're starting chronologically with the release of the original books, of course, we would start with Germany, but that we have a second edition of that book. So we'll come back to Germany. But let's talk to the United States. Now, the United States has been uh, jokingly referred to as playing bolt action on easy mode. Um, I may <laughs> have made that joke once or twice. Now, I don't actually believe that. But one of the reasons why that joke has proliferated was one of its national rules. The United States has a rule called fire and maneuver. And fire and maneuver allows units to move. And in bolt action, when you move an, a, a squad and fire, there is a negative penalty to your shooting, a minus one. The U.S., if you are using rifles, bars, uh, and carbines, ignore that. So that means that uh, all of a sudden, those times when you are hitting on sixes and on sixes, you're now hitting on sixes, which makes a huge difference to the way that you approach maneuvering on the tabletop 
and your basic tactics. And it makes squads, like inexperienced squads, pretty darn effective. Now, we haven't talked about efficiencies as far as veterancy yet, but we'll get to that before the end of this. Jeff, what are your thoughts about fire and maneuver? Because I think it is possibly one of the best rules in the game. It's really good. Yeah, in the proper context, I think it might actually be the best rule in the game Yeah. Uh, as far as an army-wide special rule goes, simply because it affords you so much more mobility with your base infantry squads. You don't have to, like you said, it's the difference between hitting on a 7 or hitting on a 6. That's humongous when you're making an attack roll. Yeah. So the, the ability to move up or, as I've learned many times, fall back into cover and then shoot me from that cover when I thought I had somebody had caught someone out of position and still be firing without that minus one penalty for moving is devastating. Yeah. So it does encourage you, however, to take full-size squads with the United States as well. Explain. I mean, the Go more, ahead. Yep. The more guys with rifles you can get, the better. Now, sometimes you're looking for efficiencies. You know, I'll, I'll take a squad of seven guys or eight guys. But with the United States, you want to take full-size squads because that ups their hitting power, and they're much more likely to hit with rifles than any other army out there. So it affords you that consistency you're looking for for putting wounds and pins downrange. Correct. And also adding to that is the the bar versus the LMG. Now, a lot it's of people so have good. said, right? A lot of people have said over the years that the light machine gun is possibly uh, more expensive than it could be, should be. Um, mm-hmm. I happen to use them. I happen to like them. I like that, that you can reach out and touch someone. I, I like that aspect of the light machine gun. But the bar is five points. The Browning automatic rifle is five points versus a light machine gun's 20. And so for five points, you're not getting as many shots as an LMG, but you are getting, as you said, you're getting two dependable shots at a longer range than a regular rifle versus one shot from a rifle. It's just great for five points. And, mm-hmm. you know, especially adding that to what you're saying about larger infantry squads. And if you're playing later war where you can take multiple bars, you're just adding firepower and the ability to reach out and add pins and damage at range. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. It's absolutely fantastic. It, I, I would, I'm on the fence about light machine guns and infantry squads. Sometimes I find them very useful. Sometimes I find them less useful. Yeah. I am not on the fence about the BAR. It is absolutely, you should put that, Take as many as your squad will hold. Exactly. It's just that good. Always. Always. Yeah, I actually have a, uh, a Battle of the Bulge U.S. list, and I realized years later that, oh, I don't have enough BARs in my army. And unfortunately, since I didn't paint the army, I've been trying to <laughs> figure out how to add more bars to that army for years. Just because, as I, you say, yeah. you need more. You need more. I literally raided my bits box when I was making my American army, digging around for any spare BAR I could find and slapping it in there. Yeah, it's it's just so good. It is. It is. Well, let's let's pivot from that into a a unit that allows you to take many BARs. (laughs) Now, at one point, I may have said filthy things about this unit on a various podcast, and this would be the U.S. Marine late war squad in particular. Now, the U.S. Marines are great because in them, you can take a few submachine guns. Uh, You can take up to three submachine guns. You can take up to three BARs. You can take up to three guys with pistols. And that's great for thematics. If you look at how units, Marine units were put together, um, they often had, they were divided into small fire teams, three-man fire teams, 
largely reflecting that that was found in uh, the the Marine Raiders. And so because of that, there were more bars per squad, larger squad, that you put on the tabletop. But that led to a lot of people making min-maxed Marine units of six guys with three bars, three submachine guns, and the bar gunners having three pistols. Um, so all of a sudden, you have a squad for a reasonable number of points that had Tough Fighter in close combat, thanks to the submachine guns, and laid out a horrific amount of firepower <laughs> at long range and short range. And they didn't have the minus one to hit when they're on the move. So my God, are they great. Now, second edition definitely calmed that down. However, yes, they are still quite good. Jeff, what are your thoughts about Marines? Oh, they're fantastic. I finished an entire U.S. American Infantry army and then immediately started a marine army just because they're that they're just that good yeah like you said the the flexibility you get in squad for the weapons you can give them is is great uh they look great and the extra var is you can never go wrong with it it's just so yeah. good in a list so i think the marines especially particularly the veteran marines are one of the most solid infantry choices in the game you get that much fighting power you get that much fight uh, shooting power Close combat power, everything about it you could want in an infantry squad right there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's move away from infantry. And I know there's other infantry units we can talk about, but let's we're trying to keep it to a couple of units per nation, and that is definitely one of the ones to talk about. Let's talk about, again, another one of those big controversial units. And something that is definitely more prolific on the tabletop than they were in real life, and that would be <laughs> the Stuart. The M3 Stuart in particular. Now, in bolt action, if you have a tank that has multiple weapon systems, uh, you are allowed to fire those weapon systems, depending on how they're configured on the tank, in different directions, um, hitting different units. And um, we used to refer to those units as pin sprinklers, where you can have uh, a tank fire one weapon system at one unit, another at another, another at another. So one unit is able to lay pins on multiple units around them, which is very efficient on the tabletop. And when you have a light tank like the uh, Stuart in particular, that's very cheap. If it is just festooned with machine guns, uh, depending on which version you are taking, um, you are able to lay down pins in a ton of directions or lay down a horrific amount of fire dice on someone uh, who happens to, um, you know, if you have a squad of Marines that comes around a corner, all of a sudden, you know, you're dumping out, I suppose Marines is a terrible example because that'd be Americans shooting Americans. But you get, you get what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, if you have three medium machine guns, for example, or more, you are kicking out 15 to 20 to hit dice. Uh, and that can absolutely wipe out even veteran units. What are your thoughts about the old Stuart? I think uh, as a competitive choice, it's awfully hard to go wrong with that much firepower in that small a package. It, yeah. It's a really good cost efficiency unit. Um, the historical the historical wargamer side of me kind of cries a little bit when I see that. Uh, if only every because time. a lot of every time, yeah. It, and the thing about it is, is again, it's a peculiar peculiarity of the rules of bolt action is that those, the Stuart and a lot of other early war tank models are, have an outsized effectiveness because they are, like you said, festooned with machine guns just all over the place. And whereas the designs, 
ended up not being very practical on a battlefield. In, a, in the abstract sense of a, of a tabletop miniature game like this, they're fantastic because more guns is always better. Yeah. So, I mean, I I'm, I particularly in my French army like running a, a Char B1 Bis, and that's you know it's got a howitzer in the hole and coaxial machine gun, another machine gun in the in this in the front, and it's mm-hmm. you get an outsized effect from those kind of des- from antiquated and frankly in real life not that effective designs. Yeah. So. Stewart's falls in that package there. Yeah, and it they tend to be. I mean, the Japanese have millions of these things, and they tend yeah. to be um, cheap, point wise. Yes. Oh, the Italians I think do it better than anyone. Um, yes. And they just have tons of cheap, cheap tanks that just can be terrifying against infantry squads. Whereas if you have big, scary tanks like uh, I don't know a Panther or a Tiger, mm-hmm. all of a sudden it's got a hull-mounted machine gun. And it's got a giant gun on top. And it's possible that you gave it a pintle mount. But if you fire <laughs> the pintle mount, then it counts as open topped. And so you yeah. have a tank that's worth four or 500 points, 400 points, you know, if we're talking the tanks I mentioned, that is, you know, two to three times more expensive than these little tanks and do far less against infantry, which if you're playing standard games of bolt action, you are most likely going to face on the tabletop you're more likely to face infantry than tanks so again it's choosing the weapon that is going to be effective against what your enemy is taking absolutely all right well let's uh let's talk about tanks a little bit more uh now the u.s have a rule that gives them a bonus to certain tank weapons that are gyro stabilized and that means if you take a veteran version of tanks and usually Veterancy on tanks, if you're taking veteran tanks, doesn't do a ton versus regular, uh, except in a U.S. list, because it, it gives you a plus one to hit, which makes those weapons a lot more effective. Now, Al wanted to mention the 105 Sherman, and that, of course, is the medium howitzer M4 Sherman, that with the plus one means that it is one of the most effective medium howitzers in the game not only is it in an armored platform not only does it have machine guns on it to fire as well a couple but you also have uh, a plus one to hit medium howitzer which is great against infantry and armor if you need these are great tanks uh what do you think jeff yeah so i'm a huge huge fan of the m7 priest i love the miniature i love the model i've seen them in real life I bought mm-hmm. one just to paint it. It looks fantastic. I don't think I've ever put it in a game of bolt action because the, the Veteran 105 Sherman is just a better choice. Yeah, it's the the Veteran 105 Sherman because it's close top. It's nine. It's a nine armor tank. Uh, you do have that extra hull machine gun to shoot with. You know, you can have it parked in very good cover to out of sight, and then use its order dice to take nine inches out of that cover, possibly even getting a a side shot on another tank or getting the angle to shoot down the line and hit some infantry that were behind a wall to it, but are no longer because you've advanced and getting that clean in the open shot with it. So it is really, really good. Yeah. I could not say that. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Uh, Well, there are about a million things we could probably talk about from the U S book, but let's shuffle off the U S shall we? I I know there are other great things in there guys, but we're just going to talk about a few things per army list. Now let's talk Germany. I did say that we would come back to it. Now Germany is 
uh, interesting in that it's had a second army book. And I know it's been out for a number of years now. But it is worth mentioning that those national rules got significantly better between uh, the first and second edition of the game. Mm. Now, of course, Germany always had Hitler's buzzsaw, which added to the effectiveness of machine guns, which makes light machine guns uh, possibly pretty darn good. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, people talk about light machine guns being, yeah, do I take that or not? But when they get that plus one dice from Hitler's buzzsaw or when tanks get plus one um, attack dice that that feels pretty good right absolutely yeah that's where it really starts to shine is when you see it on vehicle mounts and it, it does actually make the choice to take it in an infantry squad much better yeah and another really interesting and effective rule that the germans have is that their officers get to have an additional order per turn so just their lieutenants get to issue an additional order, even base low-level lieutenants, and that can lead to um, you know interesting combinations. If you lay out your units in the right way, um, if somebody walks into one of your units with one of theirs, and then you're able to snap your fingers, and all of a sudden three units get to fire in a row, which you know due to the order dice mechanic isn't always the case normally, right? Absolutely, yeah. I think snap to action at least in our local area here is, is severely underutilized. And so I think some players don't appreciate how good that extra snap to action dice is. And one of the best uses I found for even off a second Lieutenant with a German army is if he's near two infantry squads, he can snap, have one assault the enemy that's in front of him and put the other on ambush. Because even if you win that first assault, there's usually another unit that's going to come hit your guys next. Yeah. But if that second unit's in ambush, they can put some fire on that unit as it's trying to assault your first unit. So, there's a lot of tactics involved with the snap to action, and Germany just really allows you to make use of that. And it's, it's, it's a really good army rule that does take some practice to use properly. Definitely. Now, Al wanted us to mention the Nebelwerfer, and we did talk about <laughs> multi-launchers previously. Now, I do want to mention that there is a cheaper version of the Nebelwerfer in this book called the Howling Cow, which has fewer crew. If you are scrounging for points and you desperately want a multi-launcher, That is definitely a way to go. I've seen them used very effectively. But let's talk about possibly one of the most uh, point-efficient armored, quote-unquote, armored cars in the game. (laughs) The medium machine gun motorcycle sidecar combo. 40 points for a medium machine gun on a uh, soft skin vehicle that doesn't disappear when it's close to enemy models uh, because it never had the transport rule. Uh, pretty damn awesome, especially since they zip all over the place and are a massive pain in the neck for 40 points. They are very, very good. Would you agree? Absolutely. Highly effective. Yeah. I absolutely have one in my German, every one of my German lists. They're just so good for the points cost. The mobility, the mobility, the motorbike provides is just, it's just out of this world. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm a massive fan massive fan but um are you as a a massive fan as that as you are the flaming hetzer because uh (laughs) i used to in version one uh at my most competitive i had a flaming hetzer and a uh partisan list and my god did it ruin people's day what are your thoughts about the flame hetzer now i think it's still excellent uh if you're going to take a flame shooting vehicle in the german army i think it's the one to grab 
because it's one of the cheaper ones, but it still has a decent armor protection to the front. And if you're getting shot in the side, you're going to have a bad day regardless, no matter what you know tank you're driving around in. But it's really good for getting up there, laying down some fire, and it's tiny, which means it can hide behind a lot of things you might not think a tank can hide behind. Yeah. Because it's just got that nice low profile to it. It's my Along favorite part of that tank. It's yeah. actually wonderful. Um, normally, guns on tanks are high up. Um, you know, they have turrets, literally, to shoot over things. But the Hetzer is designed to be, you know, low slung. And it is a short, it is short in real life. It's a short model, but its gun is all the way to the top of its hull. So it peeks out over walls like nothing else. It is, so, it is, yeah, it's great. And when you, when that weapon system that's sticking out is a flamethrower, whoo, it's hard to get rid of. Yep. It's a it's a moving 12 inch exclusion zone. Nobody wants to get near it. Yeah. Yeah. The Japanese have a, uh, a flamethrower vehicle that is similar to that. Mm -hmm. I'm sure we'll, we'll maybe talk about that later. Uh, well, let's uh, while we're talking about German vehicles, let's talk about the the elephant in the room, the the unit that everyone loves to talk about in competitive German listing, the Panzer IV. Um, <laughs> now, this was never a thing in version one, but in version two, we did get the new German book. And in the new German book, we got a rule called Tiger Fear. And it is very controversial, but it was the, it was to give a little bit more effectiveness to the big cats that, you know, maybe weren't the most point efficient units in the game. Tigers, Panthers, Tiger Twos, Elephants, all of the big, big tanks that cost a ton of points and had one or two weapon systems that got to fire a turn and kind of felt bad to run so that you didn't see them as often, especially at the competitive level. Now, the Panzer IV got Tiger Fear. Now, what that meant was it was not an expensive tank, but it still benefited from this fantastic rule. Now, recently, Tiger Fear did change. They did, quote-unquote, nerf it to bring it into line. And some people have loved that nerf. Other people have not loved that nerf. And that's not what we're discussing today. However, the Panzer IV is still a medium tank that has the Tiger Fear rule that is usually reserved for big, scary tanks. Given all the changes, do you still like the Panzer IV as a competitive <clears throat> choice for the Germans? Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> no, I've dropped it from my list, even though I have a really nice one painted up, but, um, it's not like, it, it isn't like it became bad. It's still an excellent tank, but if you're looking for points efficiencies because it law, because of the change to Tiger Fear, it dropped some of the efficiency off the Panzer IV. And when I'm doing a, a choice cost benefit analysis between the two, I'll often take a late Panzer III instead that still has the nine armor. And the only thing you're really losing is you're going from a heavy anti-tank gun down to a medium anti-tank gun, but you're saving a fair chunk of points to do that. And that makes a Panzer III a more, uh, more optimal choice for most of what I'm doing with a list. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, I'm the the schmo who always runs a, a Panther. So for me, I oh. go, eh, <laughs> I've never had a Panzer IV. That's fine. So, yeah, for me, it was always what do I want my list to do rather than 
oh, I'm going to take this tank to get the special rule. But mm -hmm. uh, having done the meta analysis for Australia's largest tournament last year, it was interesting to see how many Panzer IVs there were. It was like, oh, yes. yeah, that is a fairly common one. We should probably talk about that. Now, I do want to mention, there's a couple of little mentions that are not necessarily tied to a unit or a national rule, but the Germans have a weapon system that is not uh, represented anywhere else in bolt action, and that's the assault rifle. Now, I don't mean to keep harking back to version one of the game, but version one assault rifles were excellent for five points. They allowed, they were a lot of firepower at short range, and... Um, they gave you Tough Fighter, which was great. And so for five points per model, they really increased the, the range of your weaponry and the firepower of your weaponry. However, in second edition, due to the changes in range for assault rifles, one, and two, the change of Tough Fighter has sort of brought them into line. They are still five points. They are still effective. But at a very competitive level, do you find the assault rifle being something that you would want to put into quote-unquote competitive lists <clears throat> in second edition? I still kind of like them. I was never one to run all the assault rifles I could get my grubby paws on to start with. I always like them as a as seasoning on my squad, so to speak, um, <laughs> to give them a little bit of extra versatility and difference. And I still see them in that role. What about you? Yeah, it's that's absolutely correct. They went from a they went from a, a an upgrade I would always take anywhere I could to an upgrade that I sprinkle through units. You know, I'll take two or three in a squad, maybe. Uh, it's a significant change. I mean, there's there's not like they got bad. They just got pulled into line with other special weapons, and right. and the points is much more reasonable for what they do now. So they're still pretty good. The only the only time I fill out an entire squad with them is I have a couple SS units, and I might give one squad in the SS army all assault rifles just because they're the favored sons or something stupid like that. But generally, I still find assault rifles very good, just not an auto-include like they used to be. Right on. All right. Now, I think we're going to move on. Now, guys, I know people are screaming choices at us through the Internet right now, but we <laughs> are just picking a couple of things per list. And there's a lot. I mean, we're an hour and 15 minutes in, and there's quite a lot to go. So we are sort of cutting and going. So let's talk British. Now, the British national rules are interesting in that you get to choose a, you get to custom pick a rule um, out of a list as one of your national rules. And that's to, to fit the, the varying nature of Commonwealth units that were represented across the battlefield in World War II. Uh, and one of the rules is up and atom, which is basically the bonsai rule for the Japanese. Now, why don't we talk about bonsai slash up and atom at the same time so we don't have to go back when we get to Japan? You have played Japanese. What are your thoughts about that? What does bonsai do or what does up and atom do and why is that so good in the game? Well, the biggest thing it does is it... Um trying to think of a good way to say this is it changes one of the core mechanics of the game. Normally you have a lot of concern about how many pins a unit has on it, because right. if they have too many pins, then the math becomes, they're going to fail the order check and not do what you want them to do. What bonsai gives you in particular is the ability to say, I know I'm going to make this roll if this is the order dice I give them. So I don't have to be as concerned about the number of pins I get, right? which is very powerful. It is the, 
the only minor downside to Bonsai in particular is, is that you do have to charge the closest visible enemy unit. Now, some very crafty opponents can exploit that, but I find the most of the time the exploitation of that to be more of a, a myth than a unicorn that prances across the battlefield <laughs> than ever actually used in practice. Yes. People say that, but I never see it actually happen. That being said, up and Adam is almost the same because you're still going to get that off, but it's better because it doesn't have to be the closest unit. Right. And uh, But on the downside, you cannot give it to inexperienced squads. So, right. yeah, that in that case, it's great. Now, what makes it interesting is that that is then combined with another national rule that some people say is amazing, which is that you guys get a free arty observer, free artillery observer. Now, artillery observers aren't what they used to be. Um, they were sort of brought into line with second edition, but they're still great. And um, still they, great. they cause your opponents to really make the hard choices of, do I cluster my units? You know, do I create a battle line? Do, you know, if you're moving forward toward an objective, how much do I want to bunch my units together, either on that objective or part of like a fire base? Knowing that the British player can call down an artillery uh, bombardment, and if that hits, it can decimate a squad, a, a squad or a bunch of squads in a particular place, and it can rain down pins like no tomorrow, and that can really gum up your army. And again, free. So free, yeah, which is a hundred percent, hundred percent better than not free. Uh, <laughs> efficiency standpoint, that is. What are your thoughts? I mean, I think that both the combining those national rules really does give the British uh, some great tools to start with before you spend a single point in your army list. Yeah. One of the things that I um, have grumbled occasionally about the British, I'm not saying they're, they're broken or anything. It's just right. I feel like they got the bigger tool bench to work with. So you can design your list you can more tailor each one of your lists to do exactly what you wanted to do with the British special rules just because mm -hmm. there's more choices. Uh, you can pick exactly where you want things to go, how you want things to go. And and that's great. I Frankly, I just wish every army was like that. You know, I wish everybody got to kind of be more specific about how their army was going to play that day. So, But the combination of the British rules and that free observer, yeah, it's, it's brutal to play against. They're a very, very good army. Yeah. They are. And I think adding to that, if you look at their army list and what is available in them, you also get a great selection of units that have special rules. You have the paratroop section, which allows you to take units with stubborn. You have chindits, so you can pay to get a almost the fire the fire maneuver rule that the Americans have. You have commandos who can get tough fighter. But then then there's the unit that, um, so again, there's that versatility. But then on top of that is a unit that people love to talk about in this game, and that's the Gurkhas. <laughs> and we definitely could not go past Gurkhas if we're talking efficient units slash uh, competitive units in this game. Now, the Gurkhas have tough fighters, but they also mm -hmm. have another rule called scary blighters. And without digging into exactly what everything does, they basically become like super combat monsters for their points, even with the tough fighter rein in. Would you agree? Yeah. Yes. They are, as far as I'm concerned, the best close combat infantry unit in the game. 
They are definitely one of my favorites, and we will talk about one of my other ones in a minute, but between the two of them, I would absolutely agree. They are in the top two um, mm-hmm. most effective units in the game, uh, especially for their points, and yeah. especially when you start combining them with the British national rules. Yep. It, yeah, it adds up. And again, I'm not saying the game's broken. I don't think they break the game, but they are very good um, yeah, at what this- they do. Yeah, I think this is frankly combined with the national rules. This is the scariest unit you can see your opponent lay down against you. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. Uh, well, let's 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 talk vehicles a little bit here. Now, the British have a huge number of tanks, but you mm-hmm. want to talk about one in particular. Let's talk about the Churchill ARV. Yeah. So this this kind of goes along with God, jeez, AVRE. This kind of goes along with why the Sherman 105 is good, is that mm-hmm. the Churchill in itself is an excellent platform in bolt action because it's a very, very heavy, well-armored tank. And then you give it the addition of that gun on it, and it just absolutely wrecks things mm-hmm. in, in an infantry game. Maybe it doesn't kill other tanks all that great, but who cares when tanks aren't what are going to score you points in the game? Right. So so it's an, it's an infantry and building just wrecker. And it will do terrible things to the train on your table. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, agreed. Now, the British are particular because they sort of have a little bit of everything. You can take the Stuart. You can take the Sherman. You can take the anti-tank rifle. You, I mean, a lot of the things that we've talked about today are present and accounted for in the British army list. So there is a lot of versatility there. Um, but one of the things I want to talk about, many people I'm sure were surprised when I didn't mention trucks in the generic units. Now, trucks are hugely important on the bolt-action tabletop. They are very point-efficient transports, uh, 40 points for a regular truck. And they're great when you start putting machine guns on them. Um, They become mobile weapon platforms that carry troops. And mobility allows you to get your units across the tabletop faster, either to get in close with the opponents without getting punished by their long-range firepower and or to grab objectives. So trucks are amazing. Um, No matter what edition of the game, trucks have always been great. Now, what the British have, and what some other countries do too, but I kind of wanted to draw a small underline under the British version, is the British have a lot of choice in trucks and transports in different sizes. So you can kind of get the size truck for the squad you want um, to put down, which is pretty cool. And that can save you a couple points if you're running smaller squads or allow you to take a larger squad or two or three in one truck if you have a game plan that really calls for that. Jeff, what are your thoughts about trucks slash the the British ability to take a truck that sort of matches their the their squad size? Well, it's really nice in the British list. I mean, you can't undervalue that because you don't want to have to pay for more truck than you need. <laughs> right? And so ha- and so right, exactly. So having having the ability to pick the correct size truck is great. Putting a gun on a truck is a fantastic idea, and the amount of choices the British get for transports is fantastic. All the way, I mean, all the way from your light trucks all the way up through, I've seen people play a armored command truck, and that's hilarious, too. Yeah, right? Um, <laughs> you know, so, uh, and in particular because there's not that many enclosed mm-hmm. armored transports in the game. Right. And so it, it, that itself can be excellent, too. So at the end of the day, 
having choices and the ability to take particular choices is one of the stronger suits for an army in this game. And I feel like some of the armies that have more choices appeal to more players and consistently do better as well because you can more tailor your list to do exactly what you want it to do. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk about something you just mentioned there. Armored enclosed vehicles uh, that are transports. And the British have one that no one else does. And uh, if you are playing ahistoric lists, this <laughs> is your buddy, unless you're playing Canadians. And that would be the Ram Kangaroo. It is essentially a, a glorified Sherman with no turret um, that has troops inside. Uh, so it, it counts as an enclosed armored, closed topped vehicle. Oftentimes we get, you know, armored vehicles that like half tracks that take troops around the tabletop, but they're open topped. Uh, the Ram Kangaroo is a bit of an anomaly in that it is fully enclosed and it is terrifying to face across the tabletop if you're used to playing you all the tactics that you would use against armored transports in bolt action a lot of them just don't work against the ram kangaroo because it is fully enclosed and it has heavier armor than your average bear so it's uh it it's something special to to look at that yes it's expensive compared to a truck in particular but man is it worth it uh what are your thoughts about the old kangaroo yeah, if it this this thought's going to go for any army that has access to an enclosed armored transport, you want to be taking that. And I think British have one, two. Uh, as far as I know, after that, the only other army that has them is, I believe, is Early War France. Yes, and they have a track version, and then the VU DB, I think it is, which is a wheeled version. And, oh yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. And they're absolutely fantastic because, again, like you said. Normally, if it's an open-topped or soft-skin transport, eh, you throw a few rifle shots at it, put a couple pins on it. That kind of, you know, makes the other player deal with it, and you know, you don't have to worry about it. These laugh at small arms fire, and <laughs> yeah. if you're if you're not ready for that, it's going to catch you with your pants down when the flamethrower engineer squad pops out of it when they didn't have any pins on them and mm -hmm. hosts an impromptu barbecue with your infantry. It's never fun. So, uh, anytime you can get an enclosed armored transport, I think they're great. And like you said, they're not always in historic lists. Mm -hmm. um, this is definitely more of a competitive thing because there just weren't that many of them made for, well, France got knocked out of the war early and then the British didn't really have a need for enclosed armored transports that often. So it wasn't obviously until post-war when those things became more commonplace. Agreed. Yeah, right. Um, and <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm not sure how we're going to dig into the competitive choices for France today, but, um, <laughs> no, it's okay. But... Yeah. Well, Jeff, let's, let's talk about another nation. Um, now if we're talking about the versatility of the British having choices from all sorts of units from across, uh, the bolt action spectrum, let's talk about a list that, a nation who both have great national rules, but have, you know, considerably more choice than the British. Uh, now, the Soviet book is famous for allowing you to do almost anything you want in bolt action. So narrowing that list down is actually really hard because they have a little bit of everything. They have a lot of units that have the ability to take Tough Fighter. They have a lot of units that allow you to take a proliferation of submachine guns. Um, they have the anti-tank uh, anti rifles in spades, i.e. you can take three 
for one slot. So you can take three of them in a normal list where, for example, Germans or um, British can only take one. Uh, and then on top of that, they have a slew of other uh, extra national rules and new units that really does give them a huge number of choice. But let's let let's dig in a little bit there. Um, do you want to talk about Soviets in general before we dig in, or? <laughs> well, I mean, perfectly said. I mean, the way the Soviet list is the one list where a guy comes to the table and he sets down what I look at and see as a Soviet army, and I will actually ask, "Hey, can I actually look at your army list?" Because I have no idea what could be in there, right? Because anything could be in there. Uh, they have the smorgasbord of choices across the table of their own uh, all their own Russian produced stuff, British produced stuff, American produced stuff. So mm -hmm. there's never a clue what that list is going to be. And the fun part, as I was saying earlier, having choices and being able to pick specific units to do things is very powerful. The Russian book, Soviet book, is absolutely where it's at because you can get any iteration of whatever you want mm -hmm. and build your list out of that, which is very, very good. And on top of that, you know, this is one of those oftentimes you'll see as a horde army because they get a free infantry squad and you will just see tons of infantry facing you. And it's really intimidating when a guy plops that many guy, uh, soldiers down on the table. Yeah. And as in addition to that, when people paint up a Soviet horde, it then allows them to run almost any style list because, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of the units, be it Siberian veterans coming in or late war, early war, middle war, they all wore the same stuff and, and they yeah. all wore the same uniforms. So you can count the same models from game to game as completely different units, which allows even more versatility because you don't have to go and paint a bunch of new units. Um, whereas other books, you know, paratroopers look very different from commandos, which look very different from Gurkhas, which look very different from Marines. Soviets, yes, there are some units, there are paratroopers which were dressed differently and that sort of thing. However, a large number of Soviet units all look the same. And mm -hmm. so it really does lean into that versatility even more. But you did mention a free squad. Now, the British, of course, got the free observer. The Soviets get free a free, inexperienced 12-man squad. I've heard them called the party boys before um, because they're <laughs> often thrown in a truck and they just drive around. Yeah, you just get a free squad, which, you know, as we said, is 100% more effective uh, or 100% more point efficient than uh, a non-free squad. Yep. And that's in addition to the limits that are laid down in a standard platoon. So you can run, if you're running theater selectors, seven squads. If you are running just a regular reinforced platoon, you can run up to six squads, which means you are the only one in the game who can do that, which is very valuable if you are trying to have a lot of squads on the tabletop to, uh, to grab objectives. Um, yep. Super effective. Uh, what are your thoughts about the free squad? They're just really, really good. I mean, obviously a free order dice is never anything to leave out. Mm -hmm. And a very popular tactic up here is to take that full 12 man and then and then give them the anti-tank grenades because mm -hmm. suddenly you can't just ignore an inexperienced squad anymore because if your tank gets too close to them, they will wreck you mm -hmm. if, they get, if they get close enough to charge with those anti-tank grenades because there's usually still at least 10 to 11 of them still alive when they get there. So it's really good, just really good. 
Yeah. And unlike, again, uh, unlike the French, you don't have to take three other inexperienced squads to get that fourth inexperienced squad for free. So exactly. it's just solid. And if you have um, combined with uh, not one step back national rule and the existence of commissars in the Soviet list, yep. you have a better chance of those inexperienced squads being there at the middle end of the game. So they can actually partake in some part of the game rather than just being pinned out and sitting in a corner or and or dead. So uh, yes. their effectiveness is drastically improved. Um, now, I do want to talk a little bit about a unit type that they have that um, the Germans got something like this in a later book, but it was nothing as versatile as what we saw in the Soviet book, and that is tank riders. Now, tank riders, it is just a normal infantry squad with submachine guns. You can take them at regular or veteran, but they, they do not need a transport. Now, we talked about the importance of transports a few minutes ago, about allowing you to get across the table quickly. Tank riders can hold on to the outside of tanks. They break the uh, transport rule a little bit in that they're able to hold on to the back of your tanks. And if you're playing tanks aggressively, that means that you're able to get forward with squads, transporting them, and then have them hop off and get into position. Now, of course, uh, tank riders jump off the tank the second anyone starts shooting at them. But that can give you a nice little movement bump that no one else gets. And, you know, again, you're not really paying for that. So mm -hmm. that is a pretty damn effective squad. In fact, you're not paying any additional points. You're just paying for the SMG. So points efficiency-wise, in competitive listing, if you are looking to add that mobility to an otherwise, perhaps even if you're running those big, scary horde lists that you were talking about before add a little mobility to that rather than having to buy a, a, a truck you could just have some guys hold on to your tanks depending on what your tactics are would mm -hmm. you agree oh absolutely yeah we i uh, played in a doubles tournament a couple of years ago now and we were both playing german and we ran into a russian who had a horde infantry the first guy had a horde infantry the other guy had an armored T-34s, each one had a full squad of tank riders on them. Mm. And we learned very quickly to keep our MMGs on ambush. So when that tank became visible, you had to fire at it to get those guys to dismount. Because yeah. otherwise, they rode right up on that tank. And with the SMGs, they just wreck you. So it's a great rule. It is. Now, I, I do want to list a couple of hits uh, here that we have talked about previously. Of course, we're talking about the Katusha, which is the multi-launcher uh, truck. There are a lot of tanks with a lot of weapon systems. Some of those are festooned with machine guns. We have some a, a huge variety of infantry squads. You can have an infantry squad with just about any special rule in the game. Uh, in fact, you can have lots of them. You do... Oh, and of course, we didn't mention the Panzerfaust when we talked about the Germans. Uh, it somehow slipped yeah. my mind. <clears throat> and yet it was in my notes for Soviets. You can take Panzerfausts, a Panzerfaust, in certain Soviet infantry squads. And for five points per Panzerfaust, uh, that mm -hmm. is the most points effective anti-vehicle weapon in the game, hands down. Mm -hmm. And the Soviets can use, and it's traditionally a German only rule all of a sudden the soviets the most versatile book have access to that too yep <laughs> uh, what talk to us a little bit because panzerfasts are great not only 
at holding vehicles at bay because you can shoot at them at short range. Uh, they don't have huge range, so tanks have a little bit of leeway at staying back from them, but they are a great uh, deterrent, not to mention if you get close enough, you don't even have to shoot them. They count as giving you anti-tank grenades, and so yeah. squads that don't normally have them all of a sudden are banging on the hatch of a tank with its Panzerfaust in a way that no one else does. What are yeah. your thoughts about Panzerfaust? Oh, they're absolutely fantastic. And oftentimes when I'm making a German list, because I can take more than one in a squad, I'll mm -hmm. take two or three per infantry squad. And then I don't bring any other dedicated anti-tank weapons because if he's going to spend all his time using his tank hiding from my infantry squads, mm -hmm. that's a win for me anyway. And if yeah. he doesn't hide from my infantry squads, usually I can hit with one of them when I fire three out of the squad at him. So I think they're fantastic. The just icing on the cake is giving you any squad that has one the tank hunter rule. Mm -hmm. And the Soviets can really use that to kind of catch you off guard when you think, oh, they've got one Panzerfaust, whatever. They won't hit me probably with it. And suddenly, like, actually, I'm just going to assault your armored car or your light tank and just beat the hatches in because I can do that because I have tank hunter as long as that's active. Right. So, yeah, you it's just a fantastic. And for five points, you can't go wrong. Definitely. Well, you but can't go wrong. Before we get to the vehicles. I think it, it, we should mention a couple of possibly honorable mentions um, because they are debatable on whether or not they are super effective these days. But the assault engineers, not only is it an engineer squad that you can put a flamethrower in, which we already talked about being great, but they have an upgrade that no other unit in the game does other than tank riders, also Soviets, is body armor. And that makes them sort of veterans on steroids because rather than being able to kill them on a five or a six for five additional points per model they are only killed on a six and that really adds a lot to their durability uh if you are shooting at them which if you combine it with a flamethrower is pretty damn special would you agree oh absolutely yeah they're they if they take body armor i have to dedicate heavy weapons to getting rid of them and that takes my heavy weapons from shooting at something else. And so that's always a good investment to have that body armor then. Yeah. So, yeah, that's just a really good unit. And sure, you're paying for it. It's not cheap. Exactly. But it's very effective. In the same vein, we have um, the Soviet scout unit. Now, scouts allow mm -hmm. you, they give you behind enemy lines. Um, so they are, they're better at outflanking. But you also have the scouts rule, which means that they can deploy as observers or snipers, which is up to halfway up the board in deployment, which is fantastic. And I've actually run an entire scout army at one point or another. Uh, in certain missions, it really adds to, depending on how the deployment rules for that mission work, really do add to your ability to get where you need to be at the start of the game and force your opponents to deal with you early, earlier than they used to be, or you know that they are used to dealing with their opponents with, I should say. I love them. Again, you're paying through the nose, but they're veteran, they're great, and yeah, they're... They can be used yeah. really effectively. You want to be careful, though, because like cavalry, you can be... If you play these incorrectly, they'll just get nuked by your opponent because they'll be so far ahead of the rest of your army. But if you play these well, they can be really effective distractors slash objective grabbers. They're great units. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing you can do with them is you can use them 
as a forward unit that takes out your opponent's forward units. Suddenly that observer doesn't feel so safe. If he's 12 inches away, he's got a scout squad sitting there. Or if you put a sniper team out halfway up the table and 12 inches away, uh, your opponent sets down a, a scout squad and suddenly you're like, ooh, ooh, this doesn't feel good anymore. So, right. <laughs> right. Yeah. They can be really good. But again, like you said, you need to have some practice with them and some experience with them to know how to use them right so they don't just get chewed up by your opponent. Yeah, exactly. Well, one of the if we get into the Soviet vehicles again, um, they like the British, they can just take a huge selection of uh, vehicles from across the board um, because of the Lend-Lease program. They had access to certain American vehicles, certain British vehicles, and tons of their own weird and wacky tanks and armored vehicles. But there is a trend across several of their artillery pieces and tanks that I think are an honorable mention, uh, and that is that they have variable weapon systems, more so than other yeah. nations, where you have anti-tank guns that can be fired as howitzers and howitzers that can be fired as anti-tank guns. The Zist three is uh, is the a weapon of choice uh, in many Soviet lists because it works both ways. And the S uh, the Su seventy six. Uh, particularly the one that you pay to have enclosed pan, that is the S76I, uh, really does add because all of a sudden your light howitzer can be fired as a medium anti-tank gun, depending on which way you want it to. And that mm -hmm. just having that choice and the variability is great. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely, yeah. There are times, especially if you're going to a competitive environment like a tournament or something, where you're going to be playing the same list for five games, because... There's other armies get that catch where like, oh, I brought a medium anti-tank gun and my opponent doesn't bring a tank. And you're like, oh, well, this isn't going to do hardly anything this game. Or you brought the artillery piece and the guy's got a really big tank and you're like, oh, I don't have anything that can scratch that. So having the versatility basically built in is a tremendous advantage in that environment because yeah. you're not you can buy one unit instead of two to get the job done. Agreed. And uh, it, as part of that honorable mention, we should mention the IS-2, which um, <laughs> is heavy tank, lots of machine guns, but it's got a heavy anti-tank gun that uh, can fire and, and can uh, count as a howitzer as far as, I guess technically not, but it, it uses a larger template size. Is that how that yeah. works? Yeah. Yeah. So good. So good. Yeah, it's really it's and I've played against a couple and they are devastating and very difficult to get rid of. Yeah. Brutal. Now, mm -hmm. I think it's I think it's time to move on. I'm sure with the Soviet list again, we could talk all day. We haven't even mentioned the cavalry. We haven't mentioned, uh, you know, the Black Death. Uh, we're, we're just going to leave that alone. <laughs> we're not even going to mention the special how uh, the flamethrower team that blocks you snipers from one shotting them like there's just a lot in there guys um soviet book tons let's let's move on to japan now the japanese of course have the bonsai rule have fanatic both of them are free both of them are baked in um as their national rule and that is fantastic we talked about those already uh jeff let's talk about something else that the japanese have that no one else has suicide anti-tank squads Hit. Oh, yeah. These guys are the bane of my existence when I'm playing <laughs> Marines or Army or anybody against the Japanese, simply because they're so cheap um, and they're so effective for what they for what they are. I mean, they're fanatic. They have an anti-tank. They're going to make the charge on your tank if they get close enough. 
They're small teams. They're hard to hit. And there's three of them. You know, I think I, I think you can get six in a list in a lot of lists. And you mm-hmm. just, oh, they just give you nightmares because you're spending all your time trying to defend your tank. And when you're fighting a Japanese army, you don't really have time to be dedicating resources to that because there's just so many other guys that are coming to ruin your day mm-hmm. that having to dedicate infantry resources to get rid of those guys is just a pain in the neck. So they're very cost-effective and excellent for what they can do. Exactly. Now, uh, let's talk about another one of the elephant-in-the-room squads that for a while everyone in the universe, and I may have been one of those people, talked about. Um, and they seem to lean into the Japanese national rules really well. And that, of course, is the bamboo uh, spear squads. Um, that is, imagine you have an inexperienced squad. Uh, imagine that uh, you wanted to run them en masse. And then imagine that because you're already going to be using bonsai and have the fanatic rule, you're not going to be shooting. You're just going to be trying to charge, 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 run at people all game. What if you got a super discount on that and they're only five points each? Well, that's 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 a pretty good unit. And uh, the Jap- a lot of Japanese players do run these things in mass. Uh, just a wall of these guys coming at you. And because inexperienced Japanese guys do get the bonsai rule, unlike the British bo- mm-hmm. uh, up and atom rule, yeah, it, it can feel pretty bad to have these guys running at you uh, as a as a brick, so to speak, you have to deal with them. Otherwise, they're going to be in your face. And because they have the fanatic rule, you can't just kill a couple and have them die in hand-to-hand combat. You have to actually kill almost all of them. Again, though, they are inexperienced. Uh, so, uh, yes, I think these are very good, but I think they can also... I think they also aren't as good as some people think. And I think it is one of those situations that you can overdo this one and it really Mm -hmm. does rob you of versatility and all you have is a point and click list. So Jeff, what are your thoughts? Well, you're absolutely right. They become, it becomes very one dimensional if you over invest in the bamboo spear fighters because you've got one strategy to play with and sure it'll work a lot of the time, but it's not guaranteed to work every time. If you, For instance, end up on a table that happens to have a lot of rough ground on it, or if the entire thing's rough ground, they're going to go nowhere. I mean, they're going to take forever getting across the table, and your opponent can simply avoid them and pick off stragglers to get victory points. So I know that doesn't happen terribly often, but it does happen enough that it's uh, it's not an auto-win strategy to have the the spear fighter guys in your list. I will say, having played against a horde army like this, it's as close to one of those video games where the zombies are attacking you is, is, is you'll ever get yes. in a game of bolt action where you're just constantly shooting things down and they're constantly still coming at you. So it can demoralize you if you're not prepared for it. So you have to be ready for the fact that, you know, there might be a hundred or God forbid, 150 models coming at you. So hold on to your shorts cause here it comes. But, yeah. uh, it's a very good list. I, I, I tend to agree with you. It's not, it is not the world beater best list you'll ever see though. No, and and it is debatable on whether or not that's a lot of fun to see across a tabletop. But oh yeah. Uh, that said, I I think it is important, and I didn't mention this that they also have green, so that means that they have the possibility of becoming regular or even veteran, which is horrifying. Or they have the option of getting gaining a lot of pins, 
which, while they won't run away, means that you can pin them out and kill them that way. Um, so it depends right. on how green works for you. Um, I do want to point out that if you are looking at that and if that really appeals to you, um, I've had a lot of success running militia squads mm. en masse. Uh, I've done that, which is just seven points a model um, because the Japanese national rules really do, as we say, help for that. But it gives you more flexibility and versatility. Again, they're also green, uh, but they have rifles. And so they are the normal seven points per model. But combined with the Japanese national rules really does give you uh, something that I don't think you get with just a bunch of dudes with spears. Sure, they're more expensive, but you can shoot. You can dig in. Yes, they're inexperienced and they don't hit particularly well. Again, I don't know if that's necessarily. I don't think this is probably competitive. But uh, let's let's talk vehicles really quick. The Japanese have a ton of cheap tanks uh, with a lot of machine guns. They aren't as good at it as the Italians, but because their technology, even though they were in the war even longer than the Germans, and they were fighting, if you include the what was happening in China, for far earlier than the Germans, they though they had a huge span of the war, their tanks never really... Uh, and their weapon systems never really advanced. So you don't see Japanese squads with tons of submachine guns because the Arasaka rifle was what you tended to have most Japanese soldiers carrying. So in a way, um, the Japanese feel like an early war army list, even though they aren't, if that makes sense. Right. They're the latest war army list, but they feel like the early war army list. I agree. Yeah. And which is interesting for being in the war literally longer than any other nation, uh, except for possibly China. They have the thinnest armies of book. Uh, it's, mm -hmm. it's very strange. But where the Japanese and I feel like the original Japanese book was very well balanced. If you were trying to take the best units out of this book and put them into one list if you tried to match it to a historical selector it never worked because mm -hmm. their best tanks were at one part of the war their best infantry were at another their best this that and the other thing it was all over the place now if you're not worrying about historical listing yes you can combine a lot of things but even within the book the listing the the units were very uh, carefully constructed. I have to take my hat off to the author of this book because the Japanese national rules, for example, are very good. For example, there is no tough fighter unit in this book. There are no flamethrower squads baked into squads. There are no... Um, there, they're just... There aren't squads festooned with submachine guns. You can take up to three in a paratrooper squad, and that's it. So it was very carefully put together. Since this book has come out, and we've seen campaign books and theater books, more units have been added. And now that balance is started to shift. And so some of the best, most quote-unquote competitive Japanese units are the ones that came out of the balance of the original book. And so, for example, if we talk about the Japanese cavalry unit, um, the cavalry unit is very good mm -hmm. as a cavalry unit, but you can take them without horses, so you don't have to pay for the horses. Now, you might say, why would I ever do that? Because they have tough fighter. So all of a sudden, you can take Japanese rifleman squad with tough fighter, which was never in the original book, 
and are fantastically effective. Likewise, Japanese engineer squads are now in some of the newer campaign books where you have squads with baked-in flamethrowers. So you have a lot of the units that you couldn't have before for deploying squads with lots of submachine guns, the night attack squads in particular, I'm thinking here. All of these things are in the later books, and they really do add a competitive edge for the Japanese. Um, what are your thoughts mm -hmm. about what I'm throwing out? No, you're hitting it right on the head. The original book is very tightly written, and it's it's fantastic. It's really well balanced. It's a great book, right? You are putting down a strong, powerful army in a competitive environment, and uh, there's nothing in it that someone's going to look at and be like, "Oh my God, this you know who possibly could have let this in?" Right? It's great. When you start mixing in things that will come in later, they really kind of combine with those rules. And it gets it can get ugly really quick. Agreed. <laughs> Agreed. I don't I don't know a better way to put it, but it can get really ugly. Like I I agree with you that I think it's purposeful that there's not a unit that can all take tough fighters in that original book. And adding tough fighter into the bonsai, into the fanatics rule suddenly makes those guys ooh boy, that's tough to deal with. Yeah. So <laughs> Yes. Oh, <laughs> oh uh yes. Well, guys, that is a look at bolt action competitive listing as a whole and the top big five nations. Now, I did include Japanese in there because they are considered to not be a minor nation in most cases. But we haven't even really scratched the surface of minor nations, and we're pretty much two hours in. So I, I realize this is probably as far as we're going to go. Uh, I do think we should probably do a couple of quick honorable mentions to the rest of the game, because I know there's a lot of people that enjoy minor nations. If you've enjoyed this episode and you'd like to see something along the lines of this again, please give us feedback. If you would like less of this, again, please let us know. And I'll tell you how to do that at the end of the episode. But before we do that, let's quickly wrap up with some general thoughts about minor nations. Now, there are some great minor nation lists out there. Um, I happen to really like the Partisan book in the French uh, and minor, uh, Allied Minor Nations book. I think it's really out there. It allows you to take some pretty crazy lists that will really be up in your opponent's faces um, and, but again, is interestingly balanced, like the Japanese list will keep you from running, uh, filth. Um, <laughs> but I don't know how else to say that. I, but I think that is a very tightly written list, but if you're looking for a, a competitive, different styled bolt, bolt action list that really is going to make your opponent think, I think the partisan list is fantastic. Um, Jeff, do you want to talk about the Finns as a whole? Yeah, the Finns are, if you want to play an infantry heavy army, the Finns, I think are the way to go. They have some excellent, just excellent units they can put on the yeah. table. They can do a lot of tricksy things. You know, you can have your uh, outflankers coming from your opponent's table edge, mm -hmm. which will just ruin people's day if they're not ready for it. Um, when they take casualties, they can upgrade to Uber veterans. So they're really hard to get rid of and pin out. So the finish list is, if you're the infantry player, I think the Finns are the way to go. They're just a really solid list for that. 
and though they their their vehicles often suffer from unreliable as a rule, mm-hmm. um, they do get a discount. And so if you want to take some some armor in your fin list, and I know not all of the armor is unreliable. Yes, I hear you, Internet. However, there are some interesting combinations you can throw down in there as well that, yeah. you know, when they start looting Soviet things can lead to some really interesting fin lists. Um, of course, a lot of the minor powers, there's some great stuff in there. And I haven't even talked about some of the newer lists that appear in the theater books and campaign books. Uh, I love the Chinese list. Uh, there's mm-hmm. some great stuff you can do in there. The The Hungarian list, uh, just there's so many great units and army lists and national rules that can be talked about further. Yep. But I think this is a, a good underline. Jeff, is there anything that we haven't talked about today that you think that we should mention if people are looking at sort of bolt action list that might be good to include in, uh, in a more competitive list? I think we've done a very good job of covering the units themselves. And I, I would just reiterate that when you want to play in a competitive environment, the absolute best thing you can do is just get practice at it. Get yes. games in. Find an army list you like and then play it a few times. And you might learn that you need to tweak a few things. Something that looked amazing on paper doesn't actually work as good or the same way you thought it would when you put it on the table. So practice, practice, practice. That will be the thing that makes you that will separate the great players from the pretty good players. Amen. I think that is very well said. Uh, And I did mention that we would talk about veterancy. I think that might be a topic for another day because I think we could probably talk for an hour about whether or not (laughs) what's better, inexperienced, regular, or veteran. And I think that largely comes down to how you flavor your list. That said, the durability and of both being able to take the hits as far as casualties and then bounce back from them because of their leadership, uh, veterans are amazing. Um, But they're also expensive. So... I agree that veterans are amazing. I've always been a proponent of regular army lists simply because you can get more models on the table with it, but not suffer the negative effects that inexperience brings. And that's not to say that inexperience isn't great. Inexperience can be fantastic if you're prepared to back it up with the leadership it may need to actually be effective on the tabletop. So yeah, we could easily spend hours talking about veterancy and how how it affects the game. So yeah, it's a great topic for probably another day. <laughs> exactly. Well, let's, let's, let's put a pin in that then. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I have to say, uh, thank you for joining us. This has been a very long episode. Um, but <laughs> I, I think we've stayed on topic, uh, for us pretty well. Uh, now if you have, and this, this particular episode, uh, has happened because of multiple requests from you, the listener, If you want to hear more of this, as I said before, or if you have other topics that you'd like to discuss, uh, a large number of these Warlord Revisiting Game System episodes are literally because of fan requests. If you would like to reach out and touch us and let us know uh, what we would, you know, what you would like to hear, um, tell us what you liked, what you didn't like, you can reach me. Uh, My name is Brad. Hi. Um, You can reach me on the Podcast Network page for this podcast. Um, I run a podcast called Cast Dice, C-A-S-T-D-I-C-E, is a generalist gaming podcast, um, but the official Warlord Games podcast is part of that gaming network. If you go to Cast Dice on Facebook, you will find my page, and if you message that page, uh, I am 
Brad. I'm the only one who will answer it. Guaranteed response every time. So thank you to everyone who's reached out recently uh, and given us ideas for this show and others, and who've just reached out to say how much they like about the show and given us some ideas on how we can make it better for the future. So thank you so much for listening. I know podcasts don't cost money, but time is kind of money these days, and uh, this is a long episode. So thank you very much for taking the time for joining us. And Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're on the opposite side of the planet, and (laughs) it isn't always easy to uh, to sync up to do these things. Uh, But again, thank you so much for coming on, man. You've been a great guest. No worries. It was a pleasure to be here. I love the no worries Australian thing. Oh, you reached out and touched (laughs) your brother's heart. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, uh, guys, when you are playing the Warlord games... Uh, that we all know and love. We hope you guys are having a good one out there. Please stay safe in these crazy times, uh, and we are wishing you the best from Warlord Games. Good night. 